The podcast you are listening to is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Oh, don't follow R2, sir. He would get lost in an elevator. And as the symphonic strains of the Cybertronic Spree cast away into the ether, we welcome you to In Trouble Again, a Star Wars Droids podcast where we look back at the 1980s animated oddity Droids, the adventures of R2-D2 and C-3PO. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, uh, William Thrasher, and with me is my counterpart, Matt bradley Shergy. Hello. And today we've got another episode, uh, the next in this serialized adventure for you, The New King, which is episode six in the series. All right, this is so we are uh, two episodes into the second story arc of the series, and this uh, picks up pretty soon after the last one. And I did a, a little bit of research here, and Droids and Ewoks both premiered on ABC in 1985 in the United States. And um, I was looking around to see what other stuff did ABC have on in 85. Ooh, what'd you find? Uh, Mighty Orbots. <laughs> Which I believe we've talked about on an earlier episode. We, we have, yeah. And the other one is something I've not heard of called uh, Turbo Teen. I've seen that. I can tell you about that. Okay, the other two I could find are Rubik the Amazing Cube. <laughs> uh, regrettably, and, I have seen that too. <laughs> and The Littles, and that one I have seen. Yeah, the the, lit, the Littles is the only standout. So Rubik the Amazing Cube, it is as bad as you think it is. It's based on the Rubik's Cube toy that you spin around the uh, uh, sides to make all the colors match. Yeah, the the premise is that, the, that Rubik is a cube from space. He's like an alien. And when you solve all of his sides, uh, his face appears and you can talk to him. But also, he can assemble himself into different things. But only when he's been solved and... You'd think they would just keep him solved, but he's always getting unsolved. Uh, and so many of the conflicts in that episode, uh, in that show, are like, "Oh no, how are we ever going to survive this? Solve the cube faster, Johnny!" Uh, yeah, a, a little bit of Rubik's Cube cube trivia. They actually made an Atari twenty six hundred Rubik's Cube game, but because that console could not do three D graphics, you could only display one side of the cube at a time as a flat two D plane. So. <laughs> It's uh, unbelievable. Um, and you said that Turbo Teen you had heard of? No, I I've, I have seen. So Turbo Teen, um, the, the, it's essentially, it is Spider-Man if, if Peter Parker had been bitten by a radioactive sports car. It's, it's about this teenager. He, he gets a new car for his birthday. He ends up crashing it into a science lab doing like a particle accelerator experiment. Gets bombarded with energy that merges him with his car. So... 
it's a whole sort of Ranma thing. Whenever he gets hot water, whenever he get, whenever his body temperature goes up, he turns into a sports car. And whenever he, his body temperature goes down, he turns human again. Which, of course, drives a lot of the conflict on the series. So it's him and two other meddling teens. They all they solve crimes together, but they're all crimes that can be solved by him turning into a sports car. Um, and it's one of those things where it raises a lot of unsettling questions. Because there are numerous episodes. One of his, his, uh, his African-American friend is a gearhead. And so there are numerous episodes where it begins with him transformed into a car, having like a new gadget implanted in his car form. And it just raises questions. How does that assimilate into his body when he turns into a human? Right. Not to mention, um, if he's getting his, his parts worked on, what, what are you supposed to imply from that? But the I guess the, the two things, it's worth watching the transformation sequence, because the transformation sequence is kind of horrific, the way his hands and feet turn into tires and his face stretches out to become the front of the car. But the other thing is, you know that song from the 80s, I Need a Hero? Yes. It's all over this show. That was their action theme. They somehow got the rights to it. Oh, boy. That's, um, hmm. A lot of the episodes end with a third act chase set to that music. Well, it's a good song. In fact, I just saw it recently. It was in the trailer for this ludicrous-looking movie, uh, Detect, uh, what is it, Detective uh, Pikachu. Oh, yeah. They do use it there, too, don't they? With um, Ryan Reynolds as the voice of Pikachu. But this is not a... This is we're supposed to be talking about Star Wars droids in this episode. The new king kind of picks up in what happened in the, in the previous episode, the Lost Prince, in which uh, Mon Julpa has, um, you know, regained his amnesia, realizes he is in fact the prince, and is going back to his uh, planet of Temuzan. Yeah. So we begin uh, with a uh, we begin in a rickety old starship that's delivering uh, that's delivering uh, Jantosh. Uh, Prince Manjulpa, R2D2, C3PO, and uh, and Julpa's uh, sort of loyal assistant to his home planet uh, Tamuzan, and the pilot of the ship, uh, who uh, Tosh keeps referring to as Old Iron Pants, um, is wearing this big bulky spacesuit. Uh, but finally, after after the pilot hears one too many complaints about the state of the ship, the pilot takes their helmet off. And it turns out it's Jessica Mead, uh, the woman who saved them in the diner in the previous episode. Right, so that's sort of a, a neat reveal, her nickname of Iron Pants aside. And I, I thought that that would only be using Iron Pants for one line, but nope, they keep it going. It's, it's a nice it's a nice little little running gag. But although uh, I just, just re- <laughs> I guess, I guess in a universe with this many aliens... If you like hitched a lift with a person in a full body spacesuit, you just assume, oh well, I guess they just their species just has to wear that. Uh, it might never occur to you that someone you already know could be under that suit. Um, but since none of the cargo is uh, is properly secured, R two D two and C three PO get knocked into the cockpit, and C three PO plays a recording from uh, Tosh's uncle, the wily old prospector who got rich at the end of the previous uh, episode. <clears throat> And something I like, something I really like about this holographic message is they make the animation on the hologram purposefully shitty. So it's real herky-jerky. The lines aren't as defined. Yeah, it skips. And it's just kind of a general, you know, he's wish, he's wishing Tosh luck to go out in the galaxy. Or as he says it, to go out into the worlds, which is a little sci-fi flourish I love to, to find his way. And this is, so I've just, I've just praised the animation. I've got to take it back. 
because something that I'm becoming more and more aware of, of sort of animation flubs uh, in this series. And in this episode in particular, they are completely inconsistent with how many fingers the characters have. Ah, All of the humanoid characters keep going back and forth between having three fingers and four fingers. The only character whose fingers stay consistent is C-3PO, who always has three. I wonder why that's the case, because... hmm. Well, I mean, it, it, it could just be an animation mistake. I mean, the 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 rule really up up until this point is for ease of animation and expression, you just give every character three fingers. But I could totally get there being a directive like, no, no, this is this is this is Star Wars, ladies and gentlemen. Humans have four fingers. Need I remind you? And just for a couple of shots, somebody kind of fell back on the old habit. Um, but the characters don't have time to rest on their laurels, uh, so there's some more pipe laying because they get attacked by some pirates. These pirates will be coming back later. Yeah, I see the next episode is is uh, titled The Pirates of Tarnuga, so I assume it's these same pirates, but we'll see mm-hmm. next week. But then, you know, there's a merry chase, there's some laser fire. Uh, they realize that they're not going to be able to get away, so Jessica Mead... Uh, detaches the front part of her ship from the back. The back gets blown up, uh, distracting the pirates, and they just blast their way to Tamazan. But the pirates uh, aren't able to celebrate their victory because they're fired upon by a mysterious ship. And who's piloting piloting that ship? But the bounty hunter who got name-dropped in the last episode, IG-88. And in this one scene, IG-88 gets more dialogue than Boba Fett did in the entirety of the original trilogy. Not to mention, in the original trilogy, IG-88 had no dialogue whatsoever. Yeah, he just he just stands around looking intimidating in the Bounty Hunter lineup. And apparently that one scene in the Bounty Hunter lineup was enough to inspire an entire um, novel of spin-off novellas called Tales of the Bounty Hunters. Oh, yeah. yeah all, all of those characters have copious volumes dedicated to them, but this is long before that had happened, and I do, I do like... That oh you know that cool looking character that never really got to do anything let's let him do something uh, and so yeah uh, IG88 is introduced as one of the main antagonists in this episode the other antagonist uh, being the vizier Kozatek Cha who I love his design I mean he looks like Jafar looks like him since he predates Jafar it's just a nice creepy vizier in a red outfit with a big hat big collar the only thing I don't like is. They give him this, he has this villain voice, he has this raspy villain voice, but because of the way they do the voice, it takes him so long to say everything. You think that's on purpose, so they have to animate less scenes? I don't think so, I think it is a choice <laughs> that the, the actor is making, but it, like the, it's one of those characters, it, it, makes, me, it makes me realize, uh, in, the, in the original trilogy with Darth Vader... Darth Vader doesn't have that much screen time or that many lines, but that only makes him more effective as a villain. Um, like hearing a whole speech rendered in that Darth Vader voice, I think would be boring and would slow the the movie down. So, but you don't want that when your villain is on screen. But unfortunately, every time Kozatek Cha is on screen, the episode has to slow down to accommodate uh, his very very lengthy speaking style. Yeah, and something about the imagery of this episode it reminded me a bit of, um, like, Thundercats for some reason. Hmm. And well, I, I mean, know. a lot of it is built around a magic MacGuffin, because in this exchange yeah. uh, between Ko and IG-88, it explains that that 
he needs the scepter to present at this tower when the sun rises, uh, because that's how they're going to determine who's the new king. And so that that puts a time that puts a, a time limit on the events of this episode. Oh, but we do get to see some slick C three PO. So when they enter uh, when they enter Tamuzan's atmosphere, uh, they immediately get uh, flanked by these patrol craft, and they don't know what they're going to do. So C three PO just goes on the calm and starts speaking in the native tongue, and he's so highfalutin that he convinces them that they're dignitaries from off world who have come here to attend the coronation. And that works. I love it when C-3PO gets a chance to outsmart people. And 3PO's kind of smart-ass modesty afterwards I found was pretty amusing. Oh, it's just simple diplomacy. Yeah. Um, we uh, failed to mention in the beginning when, when the ship is kind of rocking around, you have some very odd poses of C-3PO and R2-D2 where it looks like they're having sex with each other well, or something. Or like, the- it's like 3PO's legs are wrapped around R2-D2 and it's it's very strange. So, so I was going to save this till the, till the end, but yeah, every time they collide with each other, like a lot of those those shots out of context look look vaguely sexual. But <laughs> there is, we'll, we'll we'll go into the story context later. But in the final act of the episode, C three PO does have the line, "Well, Atu, you can be on top next time." Oh boy! And and we'll go, we'll go into why he says that, but. It's it's one of those. It's just it's there, there's a there's a thirteen year old part of me that just wants to giggle endlessly at that line reading. I'm, I'm sure they were giggling in the studio and they recorded it. I don't know. I wonder. Um, but <clears throat> but uh, in in the tussle with the space pirates, uh, due to an impact, uh, Jan or Johnny Jessica gets uh, gets cracked ribs. So when they land at the spaceport, which has a B wing and an A wing in it. Uh, they, the whole party the whole party uh, splits up. Uh, Jan, uh, Jessica is taken uh, to a medical unit to have her ribs looked at while everybody else hides out in this dive hotel. Uh, but they're being observed the whole time by this episode's Jar Jar Binks. There's this goofball who works for uh, Kozatek Cha who has the most wobbly, in a planet full of people who wear big hats, he has the biggest, most wobbly hat. And it looks so badly animated whenever they have the hat waggle, because no hat waggles like that. Hats don't waggle, uh, now that I think about it. I think it was an okay idea. They just don't quite have enough to, to pull it off. Yeah, I guess they want him to be kind of an, a, a, a Warner Brothers buffoon type of a character, but yeah, the animation isn't quite up to the task. Uh, but we begin, we get some, uh, back at the hotel, we do get a, we do get, uh, some reiteration of what's at stake and how things are going to work with getting the scepter, uh, up to the top of the tower. Uh, but the spy, you know, sees all this. So Jan decides to chase down the spy. Uh, Mon- uh, Monjupa stays behind to protect the scepter. Uh, but then R2-D2 and C-3PO are sent to the medical unit to uh, check in on Jessica Mead. However, that does leave Manjulpa uh, undefended. He gets cornered by IG-88, who captures him. Right. And um, I, I do like how they have IG-88 looking in this show. He looks a lot like he does in the movie. He He's this imposing presence, despite looking like a pencil. Well, I think that's in part because, like, he's very tall. Mm-hmm. Like, everything about him is elongated, and they keep that they they keep that in here. Like, even even when he moves, he moves like a stick insect, which does come across in the animation, and I think that is to the character's benefit. 
Oh, also, what do you think of IG-88's uh, voice? Not what I was expecting. Now, what, what were you expecting? If you were to guess what IG-88 might sound like. Okay, if I was to voice IG-88, I would do like a... Just a more stereotypical sort of robot, like, I am IG-88. Like, like a Dalek. I'd make him sound like Daleks. Even though no other robot sounds like that in Star Wars. That's right. I think something about he looks like such a robot robot. Well, you know, I, like, looking out of it, I don't think I'd have him speak at all. Mm, like, yeah, I would just, be... I would have him be silent and terrifying. Yeah, that'd be more imposing, that's for sure. And, like, you know, if, if he wanted to communicate anything, it would be done, like, really rough, like, with body language. You know, he'd, th- he'd threaten you just by pointing a weapon at you and gesturing for you to walk in a particular way. Um, one thing I noticed, I feel like they are trying to give him a Darth Vader voice, because it's a deep voice, it's moderately processed, and when he speaks, he often sounds like this. Yeah, I, I didn't think about Darth Vader until you mentioned it, but that, that's a fair point. Um, but it's I, a but- voice that works. It works, sort of. I don't know. I think I agree. Your idea of him not speaking is better, or if you just have him make noises, but they're really kind of um, distorted. Unlike you know, they're not cute like R two D 2s noises. But we do get a bit of physical comedy at the medical unit because R two D two bumps into a medical droid and spills a uh, gruel everywhere. Uh, he and the me- uh, the medical droid is, is very angry uh, at this ups- at this upset. Calls C three PO a tin head, which we all know C three PO is made out of goldium, so that's got to be uh, a pretty uh, a pretty insulting. Does every episode of the series have a droid spilling food on someone else? It seems like it. <laughs> it's quite a lot. <laughs> we, we know we ought to keep... We, okay, going forward, we got to keep track of that and come up with a sound effect or musical sting for it. Uh, you know, soup's on or whatever. Uh, but they, yeah. never really hook, they never really hook up with Jessica Mead because they get chased out of the uh, medical unit by this angry droid. Um, but they do run into Tosh as Tosh is, uh, is being... Well, that's weird, because Tosh goes from chasing the spy to being pursued by the spy, and we never really see how that happens. But he gets the drop on the spy, but then more goons show up. There's a bit of a fight. R2-D2 and C-3PO get involved. Uh, There's some slapstick, a good old-fashioned slapstick fight. Uh, But in the end, end they do get captured and uh, taken to the palace. And we come to find out that Jessica Mead was also captured off-screen and is also at the palace. Something about this whole episode, the whole fantasy vibe, doesn't feel a lot like Star Wars to me. Well, I think I think what it is, it's just a, like a lot of this. Okay, so it all feels very Arabian Nights, like and Aladdin, a lot yeah, of yeah. yeah, and a lot of this. So much of this does feel like feel like a a a, a tread of a retread of Jabba's palace because, uh, like Jabba's mm. palace, he is for all intents and purposes a wicked sultan. Well, that's what. Kozatek Cha is though though he's not the Sultan yet he's the Vizier. Uh, like that, we also get a pit with a with a monster in it. Although the way they overcome the monster is completely different. Um, there is uh, there is there is a tomb that they explore, which is which very much echoes both Luke Skywalker and C three PO and R two D two. All the corridors they have to walk to when they first enter uh, Jabba's palace. So it. It all seems like stuff we've seen before, and they're not doing much to make it this episode's own. There's no, there's there's nothing they do to really play with that conceit. Although, admittedly, at the time, I guess you you could be forgiven for not noticing because you might not have Star Wars on home video by then. It could have it would have been maybe two years since you saw Return of the Jedi in the theater. 
So maybe maybe this is one of those things that if you, it would work if you're not living in a world that's completely immersed in Star Wars. Which right. Is actually something I've been I have been meaning to talk about. Do you think we have too much Star Wars, not enough, or the exact right amount of Star Wars in our lives right now? Oh, you mean outside of the show? You mean in pop culture? Yeah, just like just like in general. Because I like I I personally am am feeling like a a bit like overwhelmed. Like th- there's lots of Star Wars like ephemera that you know I ignored back in the '90s simply because I wasn't all that in- into it. I was more into the video games and the comic books. But now I'm bom- I feel like I'm bombarded with Star Wars from all angles to the point where I really have to make a deliberate effort to tune it out if I'm not that interested in it. Yeah, you know, I think with with the movies, it was a mistake to have um, the Han Solo movie come out less than six months after Last Jedi, hmm. and and the box office, I think, sort of reflected that it wasn't a flop, but like it didn't do the money they wanted. Um, and I I'm not feeling fatigue quite yet, but I think in a year we'll be feeling fatigue because we'll have. Had episode nine behind us, they will have announced whatever the next Star Wars movie is after that, and there'll be a whole lot of um, different Star Wars series on uh, Disney's new streaming services. Hmm. <laughs> well, so, as as I'm probably not going to subscribe to that service, that'll be pretty easy to ignore. Yeah, I think right now it's. I guess I'd say the right amount, although I'm a bit disappointed it is march 2019 i think uh star wars episode 9 comes out in what like november or december mm-hmm. and they have not had one trailer one teaser yet you know that does seem strange now that principal photography is done i've heard they're saving it for the star wars um celebration whatever, the, the convention yeah celebration uh-huh. okay uh, which at this point i think they'll is what it'll have to be but it seems like a big weight um so- one thing I do back on the episode. One thing I, I do like is that Jan, R two D two, and C three PO, they learned about a secret passageway into the palace that uh, Tom uh, that uh, that Manjulpa told them about that he learned about from his dead father. And so we get kind of a neat sequence where they're they're walking through ancient catacombs. We see sarcophagi from like presumably all the ancient rulers on it. There are these antique droids down there which do get activated. Uh, and there's a nice that leads them on a merry chase. There's some falling into lava. There's one thing. It's it's one of those like sound doesn't exist in space moments. But there's a, a bit where uh, where Tosh falls into this pit, and C3PO j- uh, falls in after him, and then a boulder falls down the pit, and then R2D2 jumps down. The boulder falls faster than everybody else. But as we all know. Objects fall at a at the same rate. That's just cartoon logic. I, to... I know it's cartoon logic, but it's one of those things that really like sticks with me because it's not it's not as if we see Tosh and C three PO try to like break their fall because you can kind of stick out your arms and legs and do more wind resistance to to slow yourself or at least prevent yourself from falling as quickly. But it, yeah, it just comes off really awkward. Although one thing I do like. Uh, towards the end of this, they get uh, sealed into this corridor, and the ceiling starts descending with these big grinding gears, and they try to find a way out, and they press a button, and then the floor starts rising. 
But then they press another button and the walls start coming inward. So this is a hallway with three different death traps on it. But because they activate all three at once, they jam each other. And that's how they get out. But that's where we end up in the monster pit. Because they crawl out and they end up in this pit with this dinosauric creature in it. Uh, And... uh, and, uh, the vizier has thrown Monjulpa in there and is and is getting off on Jessica Mead uh, watching uh, watching what's supposedly going to be carnage. But this moment is very Aesop's fables because the the monster has these bumps on its tail, which you would think are just like alien warts, but it turns out they're like they're little parasites. They're uh, they're called uh, clicks, which is, I guess the Star Wars version of ticks. And R two D two knocks them off its tail. And that soothes a savage beast. And like that's that's right out of classic Greek myth. That's like Hercules pulling the thorn out of the lion's paw. It is, and I think I think that's nice. It's sort of a surprise. In a science fiction kind of action story, you expect them to, to kill the monster or you know, maybe they would uh, have the, the gate uh, sma- the head, you know, get smashed like in the Rancor pit. And that it's uh, an act of compassion that gets uh rid of the monster I think was a nice touch and I agree it is uh, kind of predictable and sort of Aesop's fable but it's um... I would say it's not predictable I mean I was oh. I was expecting uh, I was I was ex- honestly I was expecting somebody to pull out a secret lightsaber at this point but I, but I like it. it it's it's the kind of old old-fashioned storytelling that Star Wars is pretty good at yeah and when R2 gets on the creature like you're like what the hell is he doing like it's it's a Interesting to see what happens, and um, and so this this results in Monjulpa returning the scepter to its place. Well, he gets he gets the scepter, and then there's another aerial chase because they all they all escape. They run into a hangar, steal a bunch of flying vehicles, and this is another thing where like the vehicles are really well designed. Some of them are based on Jabba's sail barge. Some of them are just these like weird flying wing apparatuses. And it's one of those things where the vehicle designs are great, but the animation isn't quite up to the task of the chase sequence. So there's and there's really no real sense of space or distance. And the scepter just keeps getting like tossed around uh, and or I guess like gently lobbed at the other characters. And it does it doesn't it should be more exciting than it is, uh, unfortunately. And it, and it also goes on for a bit too long. <laughs> But they get to, but they do get to the tower, and uh, the vizier thinks that his sidekick is going to give him the scepter. But no, the sidekick gives it to uh, gives it to Monjul. But it turns out it's not his sidekick. It's R two D two and C three PO wearing the side on each other's shoulders, wearing the sidekick's robes. And this is where the the whole line about well, well, you be on, well, you be on top next time comes from. But you know, the good guys win. Uh, <laughs> he puts. Uh, Puts the scepter in the top of the tower. It gets hit by the first ray of sunlight. Uh, Manjulpa becomes the king. Uh, the vizier and his goons are carried away. I love how disinterested the keepers of the temple are during all this. They don't seem to care what's happening. They're completely passive. Yeah, I do wonder why that is. That comes off as kind of strange. Well, it would be one more thing to animate, but I kind of like to think that their priesthood maybe is like politically neutral, and they really, they really, really believe in this tradition that the king is determined by who puts the scepter on top of the tower on a specific date, which is certainly not at all democratic. Um, but <laughs> but it just it's it's something that it 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 works. Although it's so bright that like. 
you can't believe the sun's already risen by the time they do this. But uh, we then cut to a big uh, a big social event, R2-D2 and C-3PO. And really, everybody's been given a medal. Uh, Tamuzan, or sorry, not Tamuzan, uh, Manjulpa is giving out rewards. He's made uh, he's made uh, Tosh like an advisor slash uh, bodyguard. Uh, he's arranged to give Jessica Mead a replacement starship. Although Jessica Mead kind of slyly says, "Well, I'm not going to leave just yet." Um, and C three PO is giving these lofty speeches about how now he's finally gets to be a courtier. Uh, and there's a, a fun a fun bit where there are these two 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 of uh, the old vizier's goons are there trying to steal silverware and R2 and C3PO is initially defending them thinking they're diplomats but R2D2 reveals that they're thieves so we end on we end on kind of a, a sort of a lame laugh line where C3PO says well you see R2 one must never judge by appearances which is not really part of this episode although no I, I, it's. It seems like the forced uh, thing of having to add a lesson into each episode. But something I just now occurred to me: Where's IG eighty eight? They did drop that ball completely, didn't they? Yeah, he he just kind of leaves. Although I guess you know he was paid to secure the scepter and uh, and Manjupa, which I guess he did. So maybe like he got paid and left uh, during during the monster attack. Maybe he'll come back in another episode. Who knows? I don't know, but what did you think of this episode? I did not like it very much. I think it it didn't feel enough like Star Wars to me. I think it, um, I, I did like it towards the end with the Beast. That stuff is okay. The chase sequences aren't up to par with what we've seen before in the series. Um, uh, yeah, you know, Monjolp is okay, but Jan Tosh is not. It's such a flat stock character that it's. Well, he's missing. Luke Skywalker light. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, 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 it's a good way to put it. Luke Skywalker light, and and because of that, he's not as. You're not getting that same chemistry between him and C3PO and R2D2, as you did with the with the crew in uh, the first story arc of the show. Yeah, I overall I like this episode. I mean, it's it's heights I really really liked. I mean, I loved I love the bit with the monster. I love. I love uh, Jessica Mead being an ace pilot uh, in a ship that's clearly beneath her in that opening segment. I don't like the way that she's just kind of written out of the episode when when her rig- ribs get cracked, and she doesn't really do anything all that active until the very end. After that, so that that's that's disappointing. Um, and the and the animation really holds this story back. Uh, this this is and and even by the. St- this is, I guess, the animation of this episode is about on par with everything else that was being anim- most everything else that was being animated in the '80s, and that's a big disappointment for me because those first few episodes were animated so well and were so many orders of magnitude above the Hanna Barbera and filmation material that you would see uh, on television at the time. You think the budget could have been cut? I suspect it wasn't cut. I suspect it kind of got sucked up by other episodes. Oh, that could be where everything is in the pilot. And then, yeah, who knows? That's a, that's a and, good and, point. And I don't mean to disparage Hanna-Barbera or, or Filmation. I really respect what those animation studios did. But they were more about, as far as animation goes, they were more about quantity rather than quality. Yes, and... Uh... Both of them would reuse a lot of animation over and over and over again. Yeah, we've we've seen very little of that uh, in droids. Right, so even if the animation is not always successful, there's more unique frames. Um, for what that's worth, I don't know if <laughs> anyone 
cares about that, but uh, I mean, I do. Yeah. Oh no. I mean, we do. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing a show about it. But um, all right. Well, uh, very good. Well, I think we've had a good uh, discussion on this episode. Yeah. I th- I, in fact, I think we have. But there are other discussions worth having. Like, well, for instance, who was the secret Jedi Master? Yes, ladies and gentlemen. Now it is time for Droid Eye for the Jedi. So what's your fan theory on who is the secret Jedi Master in this episode? I think the sec- the secret uh, Jedi Master is Prince Manjupa. Really? Yeah. And the reason is he just kind of, you know, he's in the background, you don't notice him that much, but he's secretly manipulating the scenes to make sure that he'll get that scepter at the end. See, I'm going to agree with you. I think it's his nemesis. I think it's Kozatek Cha, and here's why. Mm. When Kozatek Cha has the scepter, we see him, for all intents and purposes, using magic. He's able to inflict pain on people. He's able to telekinetically push people around. Those are all Dark Force powers. We've seen it before. But we can't trust that that's a power of the scepter. Because no one else of the many characters who handle the scepter do any of that stuff or even talk about what powers the scepter might have. Those are clearly Kozatek Cha's Sith powers. Uh, and he's just so overwhelmed with his with his avarice and greed and, and hubris that he's just flinging his powers off when he has the scepter. That's why we don't see him use those abilities when he doesn't have the scepter. And oh, beyond that, he has... And think, think of what a good cover that scepter is for him. Oh, yeah. And he has evil facial tattoos, evil facial hair, evil red robes. Everything about Kozatek Cha is screaming secret Sith Lord. I, um, yeah, that, that's an excellent theory. And we have no reason to believe that this, that Tamuzan is part of the Galactic Republic. So this could very well be Kozatek Cha's long term plan could be to create his own Sith Empire to rival that of the Emperor's. That's exactly right. Well, I'm glad you have agreed that my theory is canon. Uh, it is. It was better than mine, so that makes it canon. <laughs> that's that's how it works. All right, now it's time to journey into the expanded universe where we talk about some bit of Star Wars media that is not a movie uh, that we have experienced uh, between uh, of recordings of this podcast. Uh, would you like to go first? Be episode one yes. of this segment. Yeah, I'll be episode one for the segment. Um, so I, I've been on a kick playing these old Star Wars video games, and I, I played one that was very unfortunate. It was a Game Boy Advance game from 2003 called Star Wars Flight of the Falcon. And huh. um, Ga- Game Boy Advance was kind of, I guess you could call it a sort of like a portable Super Nintendo as far as what the graphics were like. And unfortunately, they would sometimes try to make games with sort of uh, like... 3D graphics like Doom or that kind of perspective, oh, yeah. and uh, and that's where where this game is is disappointing in that uh, Flight of the Falcon, right? So you play as the Millennium Falcon, so it's all f- a sort of flight sim. But the problem is the Game Boy Advance can't really handle flight sim kind of graphics, and you're on these levels that are really crowded with a lot of uh, traps and things you can bump into. So it makes even the first stage nearly impossible. I spent half an hour and could not get past level one. Really? Yeah, and I've been playing video games for a while. I'm not uh, an expert by any means, but 
Uh, I've played enough Wing Commander and X-Wing back in the day where it's like, I should be able to get past level one of a Star Wars uh, Game Boy game from uh, 14 years ago. <laughs> oh, wow. Make that 16 years ago. My mistake. Although, how, yeah. how does the game look now that we have some idea how it plays? Uh, it it does not look um, good. I think at the time it might have been technically impressive just because you didn't have that many games uh, doing this kind of you know graphics at this time. Although I do think Game Boy Advance did get a port of Wing Commander um, Prophecy, the fifth one, uh, that, that did have similar... Like, everything looks too pixelated, and uh, you, you do get a good sense of speed, which is okay, but the problem is if you're constantly bumping into things, it doesn't make it very fun to have to shoot at things while trying to avoid obstacles. Um, I mean, the first level, you're just on, on the streets of Tatooine and the Falcon. It's just horrendous. I don't know what what they were thinking. Um, Did LucasArts make that game, or was that farmed out to a third party? Oh, farmed out to a third party, THQ. Th- uh, when THQ had the license to do the, the portable Star Wars games, they did a lot of bad ones. Um and this might have been one of the worst. Wow. Developed by Pocket Studios, uh, published by THQ. <laughs> so, uh, I would not recommend Star Wars Flight of the Falcon, although the cover art is kind of amusing. You have a background of space with TIE fighters and a Star Destroyer firing at the Falcon. Like, that looks cool. But then, in the background... You have gigantic heads of Han Solo and Chewbacca just floating in space for no reason. <laughs> I feel like it would be better to have like a foreshortened Millennium Falcon and we could see them in the cockpit. Um, I, I think you just do a foreshortening of the the Falcon being fired upon. It's called Flight of the Falcon. Why do you have to see Han Solo and Chewbacca? Oh my gosh. Now that would be a great conceit if it was about the Falcon when... Uh... <laughs> When Lando Calrissian had it. Is this considering the canon of the movie Solo? Where the, the ship well, I mean, has this, some sentience? This predates that by, by oh, okay. a wide margin. That's true. I mean, honestly, yeah. I'm kind of shocked that there weren't more things like that. Because that, that seems like such a rich area to mine. It's like, well, what was what was Lando doing with the Falcon? Let's let's do some stuff about that. Lando, uh, although it was in the, the books, he was still really overlooked. I think other than in the... Um, early 80s you had a trilogy of lando novels that was with lando and the millennium falcon um hmm. but otherwise it's like yeah i don't know uh yeah i do not recommend star wars flight of the falcon uh, what's a what's a star wars thing that you've been checking out well i went back to comic books uh and i was i've uh, been reading through a collection of uh it's a it's a it's 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 a trade paperback of a bunch of darth vader one-shot comics uh, and supplementary stories that, that was published by Dark Horse Comics back when they had the Star Wars license. And it's... And, and I talked about, you know, doing, uh, rereading uh, a lot of the Boba Fett comics. This Darth Vader collection is really interesting because it's kind of all over the place because it's mostly it's mostly reprints of one-shots or, or miniseries. It's different creative teams working on all the different stories, so the art style varies wildly from story to story. Another thing that really stands out is that even though there are there are ostensibly Darth Vader stories, Darth Vader is often sort of incidental. A lot of the comics in like have Darth Vader at the beginning, 
with an evil plan, but then dispatching somebody to do that evil plan on his behalf, and then he shows up again at the end to kind of tie a put to put a bow on everything. Is that dissatisfying? Not exactly, because the stories themselves are, are pretty enjoyable. I think, I, I, you know, actually goes back to what I talked about like earlier in the episode. I think Darth Vader is more effective as a character the less you see him. So it kind of works to have him be more of a distant premise in these stories. Like, I don't think I would want to read more than one issue that exclusively focuses on him. Which I think is part of the reason why the current Darth Vader comic books spend a lot of time uh, with the supporting cast. I did see some cool artwork for the recent uh, Darth Vader comic book. Where I think it was an alternate cover, because they, they tend to do that to try and sell more copies, right? But it's of Darth Vader on a black armored horse. And it was yes. silly, but kind of cool at the same time. That That's a kind of cool Star Wars badassery. Uh, one, st- oh, one story that does stand out, and this, this is something that the comics are a bit freer to do, is to have Darth Vader be a real f- nasty physical threat, which is something we don't... We, we strangely enough didn't often get a chance to see in the movies. I think we right. see him kill. I think in, in the original trilogy, uh, I think we see him kill more of his subordinates than we see him kill rebels. Um, but there's, there's a story where there's this planet where they have this prophet who lives on the planet and turns out the, the way their species works is if you cut off their head, they don't die. Their head can go on living. And so, the whole episode is about different bounty hunters fighting over the head of this prophet. Uh, and it turns out Darth Vader has hired all the bounty hunters. Darth Vader needs this prophet's head. And at first you think that Darth Vader needs the prophet's head because there are rebels who are trying to get these aliens on their side. And you think maybe they're going to be able to use the prophet's predictive powers to their advantage. Uh, you don't. Darth Vader wants the head so that he can interrogate the head about his odds of overthrowing the emperor and the head gives this cryptic prophecy to Darth Vader which sort of beautifully encapsulates Darth Vader's arc in the original trilogy but leaves Darth Vader thinking oh I will take the emperor's place all I need is a patsy I better find an apprentice But what wow. but what the head is really describing is his relationship with Luke Skywalker, which which is really nice. But after he gets this information, there's this really effective scene where we just see Darth Vader raise his hand and close it in a fist. And then we cut back to the pedestal where he had the head and it's just goo everywhere. Hmm. And and it's just, it, it, there's something just very grim and chilling about that scene, which I found very, very effective. Like, Darth Vader doesn't show up much in that story, but when he does, it has impact. And uh, this was in a collection, you said? Yes, this was the uh, Dark Horse Darth Vader collection. They actually, cool. I discovered um, they, they actually do... have several Darth Vader collections. This is, this is mm-hmm. just all sort of the sundry Darth Vader material. Everything else is like a sustained Darth Vader miniseries collected in uh, one, uh, one book. I see. Yeah, it can be a Dark Horse did no lack of Star Wars comics when they had the license, that's for sure. They, um, they did a lot. I mean, they, they were one of the, uh, 
as, as I recall, like they did, they did have an impact on Star Wars. They defined a lot of the expanded universe. But there are things that showed up in Episode One that showed up in the comics first and like predate the production of that movie. Like particularly that one right. Jedi Master with the giant lumpy head. That was a comic book character for ages before that particular alien showed up in the Jedi Council. And there was some character that appears in Phantom Menace that's from the comics that has no dialogue. That's a female bounty hunter, um, like all in white. She has white, pale white skin or something oh, and a shaved head. I believe, actually, I believe she also shows up in Jabba's Palace in the special edition. Oh, that could be, yeah. Or, or um, at least an alien of the same species. Right. So uh, you mentioned Darth Vader reminded me of something else I'd seen uh, a while ago. I don't think we've talked about it. Uh, it's a documentary from Spain called I Am Your Father, uh, directed by Marcos Cabota and Tony Bistard. Uh, and it's, um, I think, sort of the most self-indulgent kind of Star Wars documentary I've seen. And that's saying a lot because there's a lot of these out there. Um <laughs> And this one, I think the idea is fine. The idea is it's talking about David Prowse played uh, Darth Vader in the original Star Wars trilogy of Star Wars Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. But, you know, he's the man in the suit. He's the man in the suit, right? But he wasn't brought back to do it in Revenge of the Sith or any of this. And so this guy kind of, uh, it's a loose biography of David Prowse's life. But the the whole purpose of this is is sort of a selfish one in which the directors are, uh, and managed to convince David Prowse to, um, David Prowse, uh, among other things, is I, I saw him at a Dragon Con convention, I think in 2002 or something. But he's a he's a bitter man in some ways, and he uh, was always mad in Return of the Jedi when they took off the mask; it wasn't him. So um, these directors of this documentary said, "Well, we can refilm the scene and have you be your face when they take off Darth Vader's wow. mask, and we'll use a different actor for Luke Skywalker." Uh, they used a local uh, Spanish actor and uh, did the scene in Spanish. Um, and, and they film it, but, uh, as you can imagine, they, they didn't get clearance or couldn't get clearance from Lucasfilm or at this point it would be Disney, right? Um, I don't know, but at the same time, I'm, I'm always fond of like, uh, of, of versions of movies we never got to see. And I do think it is kind of a fuck you that when the mask finally came off, it wasn't David Proust. Although, if you want to see what Proust looks like with the mask off, seek out the BBC miniseries adaptation of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. David Proust plays, uh, plays Hot Black Desiato's bodyguard. And he is an imposing big man, especially compared to all these tiny British actors. Yeah, um, he, he's also, I think earlier in his career, he was one of the one of the droogs in Clockwork Orange. Um, <laughs> nice. So We're ready for a bit of the ultra-violence. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I, I think David Prowse was just, uh, as I understand it, just so frustrated the whole time doing the original trilogy because he thought it was going to be his voice, and then it wasn't, and... Uh, and then, I, and I think you're right. Him not being his face, not being there, and take off the mask was a fuck you. And I, part of the reason is he um, would go to the press and, and grumble some, which Lucasfilm did not like. Um, yeah, unlike a lot of actors, he he has been very vocal about thing about things he didn't like about the making of those movies. Most everybody else is at least diplomatic. I've heard he's banned from Star Wars celebrations. Uh, I don't <laughs> he, know if that's true. He was. He was right. for a time. Yeah. I don't know if that still holds. 
he uh, released a, a memoir, kind of a combination of memoir and, and a collection of his photos uh, about his, his career. And it has one of the, the worst titles I've ever heard. It's called Straight from the Force's Mouth. <laughs> that sounds like a farcical behind-the-scenes book. Doesn't it? Yeah. Like, they, um, they would make up, like, a fake actor who was, like, in a monster suit for every movie. And that's the behind-the-scenes story. I did hear, too, that uh, David Prowse wanted, um, when he does signatures, he'll sign it as the real Darth Vader. <laughs> oh, yes, I've heard that, too. You know, the, lo- the longer we go on, I think it's inevitable that we are going to get a movie about the making of Star Wars. I really, really hope it's a comedy kind of done, like a farcical comedy, almost like Under the Rainbow, which is a farcical comedy about the making of The Wizard of Oz. I, I want to see a comedy about the making of Star Wars. I think you could have so much fun with that. It's funny you mention that. In, a, in around 2005, 2006, um, I think like AMC or some uh, some cable channel like that was trying to produce a a miniseries based on the conflicts between Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and uh, Spielberg and Lucas almost immediately shut it down. Conflicts between them? Did they yeah. have a falling out? No, they didn't. But it, it was trying to do sort of like a, a Steve Jobs, Bill Gates kind of take on them. Um, oh, okay. And, but no, they've been friends for a long time and they didn't, they had some falling outs over Indiana Jones and the crystal skull, but that was after this thing was trying to be made. But, um, so that's sort of weird, and uh, yeah, you're talking about the movie on the making of it. I did watch an episode, and this will be the last tangent, I promise, uh, of the uh, Kevin Smith show Comic Book Men. Have you seen it? No, I have not seen it. Okay, um, so it's it's a cheesy kind of reality show where that they go to his Jay and Silent Bob secret stash, and it's mainly about his employees having people come in, and it's kind of like... Uh, Oh, one of those shows where people, you know, they haggle over what it's worth. And it's kind of like Pawn Stars, but with comics, right? Um, Mm. But uh, on one of them, they have people walk in that are filmmakers that show Kevin Smith a feature film they made uh, about the making of Clerks. And they show clips of this movie. And it's very weird seeing Kevin Smith watching a movie about himself, about his own life. Um, So that's uh, just sort of came to mind there. Um, and you know Kevin Smith did a voice of one of the stormtroopers in The Force Awakens. <laughs> oh yeah. So there you go. Um Gee, okay. Well, uh I think that about wraps up this episode. Next week we're going to be talking about season 1 episode 7, The Pirates of Tornuga. And you mentioned these are the same pirates we saw at the beginning of this episode, The New King. Uh, yeah, so once again, I love the way this series lays pipe. I love the way incidental characters come back as main characters. And it appears it's... we get a character called Kaibo Ren. <laughs> I, I am sure we'll have some interesting fan theories to discuss about that. Yes, because one of the main villains of the new Star Wars trilogy is Kylo Ren, and that sounds quite similar. So... Maybe that's a coincidence. Maybe J.J. <laughs> Abrams was a Star Wars droids fan. <laughs> Who knows? We we may never know. We may never know, exactly. Um, we'll have to ask him about his red arm, too. Uh, yes, of course. So, for uh, Star Wars uh, droids in trouble again. <laughs> that's not even the name of the show. 
Thrash yeah, nuclear. In trouble again, a Star Wars droids podcast uh, with our our opening music by the Cybertronic Spree. Check them out. You can also check me out on Twitter at Internet Mayor. You can follow me at MATWBT. And uh, yeah, we'll 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 see you next episode. Uh, and you must learn not to judge by appearances. Oh, with a mouth like that, you'll never be a diplomat. Beep, beep, beep.